Hey everyone, welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Phil from the Customer Engagement Team here. As we all know, in the world of SaaS subscriptions, if your onboarding experience is not as good as your core product, the users you work so hard to acquire are very likely going to bounce. So last month, we launched Product Tours, a brand new product here at Intercom that helps you tackle some of the thorniest problems for any new business, poor product adoption and its cousin, poor customer retention. Today's guest, Product Manager Patrick Andrews, and one of our Directors of Product Management, Brian Donahue, oversaw the development of Product Tours and have lots of thoughts on what it takes to help customers get to their aha moments. In this conversation, we discuss the broader challenges in how to think about creating an onboarding solution that's flexible enough for a wide variety of businesses and use cases, why onboarding is all too often an afterthought for product teams, the process of researching a brand new product like Product Tours, the benefits of compound product interest as well, where years of R&D yield constant new opportunities and value, how deadlines force important scoping decisions, and how the team reacted to pushback from leadership. So if all that sounds good, let's jump right in. So first, let's give some context to this project. Patrick, can you describe exactly what Product Tours is? Sure. So it's a tool that helps you create interactive in-product onboarding guides for online businesses or online products. You can kind of think about it like a sequence of tool tips or tours uh, that you can stitch together to highlight parts of a product or to drive users to take simple actions. There's kind of two primary use cases you should think about. Firstly, first time onboarding. So this means helping new customers come into a product for the first time, show them around, show them the ropes and hopefully get them to see value quickly. And secondly, feature announcements, which means helping your existing customers discover, understand and get going with new features. So that's basically what it is in a nutshell. Cool. So it's like all stages onboarding being this kind of life cycle thing. Everybody should be onboarded to everything all the time. So. Brian, why do we think this problem space mattered so much? Well, I think the rationale here, actually, you do have to zoom out a, a bit. So it, it starts with so many businesses, they are subscription businesses. And for them, conversion extends far past just handing over that credit card. Uh, you've got to convince your customers to stick around. And to do that, you got to actually sure they see value and you want them to see it fast. Uh, and for that, you re- need really good onboarding. But this is not a surprise. Everyone knows this. No one's going to disagree with that point. But so many teams struggle to make their onboarding experience anywhere near as good as their core product. Uh, So the result of this is poor retention. And basically, that's poisonous for a subscription business. So it's like exercise and dieting. And everyone agrees it's a great idea. We all want to be healthier, but it's really difficult to actually do it. Yeah, I, I find that really interesting. Like, If you're working on the onboarding, it means you're not working on the product. And that's a really tough decision to make, right? Exactly. It's a huge tension. Uh, and so that's the problem. It's a huge challenge to get teams to do this and to do it well. And few teams put nearly enough effort into onboarding. And it, like honestly, it tends to be an afterthought. Or you do it once and then you forget it. And we know firsthand how hard it is. I mean, all of us here. So and like if I look back at my first couple of years here as a PM, like I think it's embarrassing. I gave it the absolute minimum attention. Probably not nothing, but it feels like scratching a surface of that. So I totally fell into that trap myself. So I think like to do this well, you need to figure out your aha moments. And our researcher, Lindsay, wrote a great blog post about that recently. And then you need to create onboarding experiences that are actually relevant and targeted. I mean, unless you have a super simple product, generic onboarding ain't going to cut it. So you have to tailor to the jobs your customers are actually using your product for. So a core part of the pitch for for, uh, our product tour is that you don't need to use up your precious engineering design time 
to make first-class onboarding. And that means not only can you do it once, but you can revisit it, you can optimize it, change it, and build more of it without stopping your product teams from building new stuff. So, so that's critical. So it's like making this super easy to do, and then more people are actually going to do it. It's like net new people doing this job when they weren't doing it before. Exactly. Cool. Like that makes total sense to me, really resonates because as someone who's involved with onboarding, uh, before we had a product like this, getting something hard-coded into the product to explain a, a particularly tricky feature maybe can take a lot of time and it undergoes a lot of scrutiny, understandably because it's part of the product then. And as you guys know, our product's getting improved all the time when the product changes, the tooltip changes, and you go right back to the start again. So having that time frame reduced to practically zero is an absolute game changer for me. So back to the product. This was a big investment for your team and for a bunch of other teams in uh, our go-to-market and all around the business. So I think you guys started on this all the way back in July last year. How were you confident that it was worth that kind of investment? Well, I think one thing that's interesting here is it, it certainly turned into a big project and a big release, and we tried to make a lot of noise about it, but it didn't start out that way. Uh, we weren't actually sure if this was going to be a big new product. And in that sense, it was different from a lot of like the big releases we had last year. Like last year, if you look, we had a new messenger release, we had custom bots, we had answer bots. We knew these were big, ambitious projects from the outset. But not Project Tours. It started from a longstanding feature request, as in a years-old request. There was always clear demand of it, no doubt about that part. But it was really up to the team to figure out how big this was actually should be. Yeah, so we really knew customers wanted something in this space. But the question was, what was our play going to be? How big was this going to be? Is this just a new, simple message type? Or are we going to do something much more sophisticated, a whole new product? And we really went on quite the journey to figure this out. Our starting position was actually very big and ambitious. We had this whole advanced learn-by-doing pitch that enabled you to build very sophisticated tutorials. It felt very powerful, innovative, and exciting, and we were pretty pumped as a team. But then when we had the pull the trigger on building this type review with leadership, which means taking Des and Paul through this, we actually got pushback. And the feedback was classic product market fit feedback. This is a great product, but how big is the market? Are we building something that's just going to appeal to a small corner or does the majority want something far simpler? Okay, so you're obviously pretty invested in it and had this kind of great fully featured product in mind. So how does that kind of pushback feel when you're that invested emotionally into something? Well, you know, the, the feedback was great. It was really balanced, but I have to be honest, it was tough. It was tough on me. It was tough on the team. Like we were pretty psyched and motivated about the direction we had taking. So to get that kind of course correction, even though it was definitely the right thing, it was it was tough to take. I wasn't involved in the project at that point, but I remember seeing you shortly after that meeting and I knew the meeting was happening. I didn't know any of the details of the project at that point, but I could see it in your face. Like it was clear the bubble was burst after that. <laughs> yeah, it was tough. But anyway, you know, to make progress and address this feedback, we decided to start with, you know, in, in true intercom fashion, the smallest possible solution. Uh, we picked a kind of small iteration on an existing message type that we had. And we definitely knew at this point that it wasn't going to capture the full opportunity, but we really knew that this would help us learn more. We felt like if we dipped our toe into the water, this would really help outline some of the feature gaps and really solidify whether there was a demand for the solution and what form that solution should should take. And so that's exactly what we did. And, you know, after putting this into even just into beta, I think for like 10 days, it was crystal clear. We could see we had a list of the feature gaps that customers wanted. And even more than that, 
a huge heap of demand or you know excitement for this possible product that we were going to build and it was really at that stage which was probably you know 10 to 12 weeks after we initially started on this project that it kind of elevated to being a big project and kind of got the attention of the company and the big go-to-market plans yeah, I think it, it turned out, in retrospect, this was actually a really good example of our principle, think big, start small, right? We needed to start small, get feedback from customers to then be confident that the think big was really worth investing in. And I think, like, just reflect on this, it's surprising how much the default mindset for product folks, we just naturally lean towards think big, start big. You get excited by that big, ambitious, hairy project. And you really have to push back against your natural tendencies here. So I, I think it's obvious when you say, you know, you release a beta, you did a small thing, you got feedback to me. Of course, how would you do anything otherwise? But it actually takes real discipline, particularly when you think you're onto something to build in that way. Yeah. You actually, you get really excited and then you can overinvest. Yeah, exactly. It's it's easy when, when you're working on solving these great big problems to just get super excited. And it's such an important principle. And obviously it was great feedback from leadership. So at this point, let's take a time check. It's the end of 2018. There's clear confidence that the customers want this and value it. And we know it's going to be a great meaty product release. But on the flip side, there's already competition out there selling this type of software. So how did that existing landscape affect how we built this? Yeah, it's a good question. And from early on, we felt there was kind of two key vectors that we could differentiate on for product tours. And the first one, well, it was a cliche, but it was ease of use. With the ubiquitous design patterns now established, you know, it's actually pretty rare that a really good user experience can be a standalone differentiator. But when we looked at the kind of competitive market, we felt there was huge scope for improvement. You know, I was like using, trying to use these other tools to build product tours, and it really felt like being dropped into Photoshop in the early 2000s. It's kind of like been smashed in the face with configuration controls everywhere. There's Chrome extensions, complex workflows. You know, it just, it was, it was tough to use. And I've, we really felt that some good product design, you know, could really, really improve things. So we really felt that we could really differentiate ourselves by making the experience way simpler, fast, and more importantly, again, not require any technical skills, i.e. design and engineering. And don't get me wrong, there's loads of stuff we still need to improve on the experience, but the early customer feedback is proving that this was a good bet. I think what's interesting here is that the problem with good design as a differentiator is that it's not defensible. It's easy to copy good design. And, and even com more complex things like workflows, those can be copied pretty fast as well. And that's what competitors are going to do. So copying is just the reality we all have to accept in building software. I mean, if you build something good, it will be copied. And if you aren't copying, you're, you're probably either like lying or you're just being dumb. <laughs> Taking but inspiration. Inspiration. Yes. Inspiration, yes. But we think here we have another more defensible differentiator. And, and this one comes where it's really centered around the power of our platform, centered around like the, the whole intercom system and what it can give you. So once we build product tours, which you can look at them in isolation and, and kind of evaluate them, but we think, hey, you got to actually see how product tours fit into our whole system. And that's where we think we can change the conversation one. So like, for example, uh, with intercom, and we tend to almost take this stuff for granted and forget how this is a real difference, like targeting and personal Organization. We have fantastic capabilities here, and we can quickly bring them product tours. Automation. So we've got AnswerBot as our tool that lets a bot automatically answer simple questions, right? And now you can add a tour to an answer in this really nice design. And so, you know, think of it. A customer asks you a question in your message, how do you know I pay change my payment details? Instead of just telling them, go here, click this link, you can actually show them, bring them there, walk them through the process. It's like it's like a little bit of magic when mm. something like that and can happen. And they're the most expensive 
customer support interactions, right? Those kind of walkthroughs. That, that's like, that, that's premium ideal use case for how our support team are using product tours now as well. They're most expensive than the one that wrecks the team's heads that they're wasting these times on like mm-hmm. this how-to. And we all wish we could build product that required no no how-tos, but uh, I don't think any of us really quite reached that yet, right? So like that, that's like this little bit of magic that you can bring. Another place we can bring product tours is, is with custom bots. So uh, if you don't know what use case your customer is coming to your product for, that's like been a big challenge for us at Intercom, right? You can send a custom bot and ask them, hey, what are you coming here to do? And then set up a, you know, a tree flow to kind of say, right, now we're actually going to send them the right product tour that's actually relevant. So with what was relatively a small amount of effort, we're able to really open the door to conversational onboarding. And then other things, you can send product tours directly from the inbox. You can add them to Messenger home screen. And, and then all the new stuff we're going to build in the future, a lot of that's going to benefit product tours mm-hmm. as well, sometimes literally for free or sometimes for minimal additional investment. So all this stuff that you're able to do on top of the core use case, and of course, you got to nail the, the, that core use case for it. But we think of this as, as compound interest. And for us, it's a critical differentiator in how we view it. And I think you, you can't build this idea of compound interest of things that you start building more and more product and it's actually building up incrementally across the place and starting to add, I'm sure there's some nice visual we could do at some point to actually uh, show what this thing means. But the moment, everyone's just going to have to use their imagination. So basically, you can't, you, but you can't build this at the outset, right? Like you have to, this comes from years of building up incrementally and thinking and building in systems. But then you start to reach that point. We've really reached that point maybe in the last year or so where you can start stitch things together in your product really fast. It's incredibly exciting from a a building product perspective, and we think it's really exciting for our customers as well. So this is an example of of a differentiator that that we think is way harder to copy. Yeah, totally. And it's something that I've got experience in now just since the launch of Product Tours, and it's something I don't think really hit home to me until I started using it. We made some Product Tours to onboard people to individual core products or different features of them, and that was part of our onboarding experience in Intercom. But then we found our support team could leverage that as well. And then you're saving hours of their time. We can use them, our sales team are using them to walk people through the product and demo them. So very little outlay from us to create that product or and all of a sudden there's three or four different teams that can use that. that. That's that compound interest you're talking about where you're maximizing the value for minimal effort as well just because it's part of this system or platform. That's a personally resonant example of that compound interest and that uh, the maximization of, of the platform that you've got at your disposal. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. 
you just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So we've talked about the ease of use. We've talked about the, like, the way it's stitched into this uh, all-encompassing platform. But something else which really hit home for a lot of people was the inclusion of video, right? How did that fit into the overall story? Was that always part of the plan to differentiate it with something like video? Because obviously I'm involved with video personally. We use it a lot of time in onboarding. We use it in our webinars. We use it in demos. Tell me all about that. <laughs> I mean, the truth is it literally wasn't in the picture at all until very, very late in the day. I think it was, uh, I don't know, maybe mid-February, late February. And we were doing a kind of one of our early end-to-end product reviews ahead of launching tours into beta. And, you know, the general sense in the room was like, hey, this is this is solid product but is this boring? Have we built a boring product? <laughs> Honestly, I think even Brian stood up energetically and classic Brian style and did a huge spiel about how we're missing a spark or a flare. Um, but, but I, supportive I what, of you. But uh, <laughs> like what's important is sometimes boring product is exactly what you need. You yeah. know, sometimes boring product is actually the best product because it's not going to be boring to your customers who actually are feeling that pain. But when you're doing a big release, when you're putting a big push from your whole go-to-market team, you really want to ensure you're giving it its best chance to make a splash. Because when you release it, you've got that brief period of attention, of tiny bits of attention of people, and you want to maximize that. So we all know that first-to-market rarely guarantees best-in-market. But we also know as like humans, our first question is, hey, what's actually new here? And I think this is also interesting from on, on a meta level as well. Our customers who are going to use this need something that's attention-grabbing because it's the onboarding job right they need to spark that kind of interest with their customers to get them to see value quickly in the product and keep give them that momentum to keep going and get to that aha moment so yeah it works on, on a lot of levels so patrick yeah. brian has now just crushed you by telling yeah. you you've made a boring product what happens <laughs> um well I, th- I think the story goes uh, a couple of us in the direct team we kind of huddled together after that meeting and literally started whiteboarding a bunch of ideas that could add this Brian Spark per se or give it that extra dimension. And one of the ideas that was thrown on the board was video. And I think this really came from thinking through a launch. I think I think this went out at the end of last year. It was our video bots launch, if you guys remember, um, where you could send a, a video message. And the kind of question we were asking ourselves is, hey, could we do that for tours? Would that be cool? Would that work? And and really, that was like the the level of resolution we were at at this stage. But anyway, it was uh, kind of interesting enough to help us poach an engineer from the original team that built video messages. And we basically said, hey, you've got a week, spike this out. Let's get a sense of what this feels like. And uh, you guys will remember we were all there together uh, You know, at the end of that week when we, Danielle from your team, Phil, she helped us with you the you video. You stole her con- for two days. Yeah, so. exactly. And then we pu- pulled together this kind of video tour all sat down and, you know, it was one of those moments. Uh, I'll always remember at Intercom, we were like, this could be a game changer. This may be, you know, we've been on a kind of campaign for the last few years trying to find a way to use video at Intercom. And, you know, we've had s- success with that, but we've not found that like real killer use case. And time will still tell, but we really feel like, you know, this could have been really special. And then the real amazing thing was because this had been built already, it was actually pretty cheap to port this over and use it in tours. So super quick to build, and that's how it got in. 
Yeah, it which is, so it actually ends up being another example of compound product interest, right? If that was a, it was not a big bet, and it was really compelling. So even though this was speculative product, and this is speculative product, I think all of us were really confident in making this bet because it was actually pretty cheap because we could build on top of what another team had already built. So that was really exciting. Mm, and the feedback's been awesome from customers as well regarding the video. It's super engaging. They're loving it, and, and it speaks to their product as well. And it's something that that you know doubles down on intercoms commitment to make internet business personal. Yeah, that was actually another reason why it was such like a no-brainer. Once we saw it, once we felt it, we're like, this is compelling. It, it kind of ticked the box for so many angles. We're like, oh yeah, for yeah, sure. Now Boom. it feels like Intercom. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we're running close to time. I'm just going to ask one more question before we wrap it up. So we talked about this product being kicked off last July. It got delivered in April. We went to market. Like all of our other big launches, we set a date pretty far out for this release and we stuck to it. So I know there, there's a lot of, I suppose, arguments either way, but dates are usually th that kind of contentious thing to work towards for product teams, right? Some people feel that they're a bit too constraining. You know, you should be able to produce the best thing ever and release it whenever it's ready. But Patrick, I've heard you actually love working to date. Is this actually true? Yeah, yes, absolutely. I think just just one clarifying point here. So when we when we do work to dates at Intercom, we don't blindly put a stake in, you know, next March 21st and we have to build the product in that time. You know, we make a, an informed guess based on the rough ideas of what what we're trying to build uh, and kind of come to a consensus from from that way on, on roughly when we think this is going to land. But anyway, yes, I do think dates are fantastic. And the reason why is I, I think it's probably the most powerful forcing function for making progress and decisions quickly. Ultimately, you know, if you can't change time and within reason, you can't really change the resource of your team, you know, you can't just magic new engineers and designers and we have a bar on quality. Well, then the only real dimension for trade-off debate is scope. So like what features are in, what features are out. And so having a date there and, you know, that time constraint really forces you to make super, super hard scoping calls and really hone in on building the most important features. And, you know, this isn't just me as the PM. This is everyone in the team. It's a constant debate that we're having every day. Should this be in scope? Is it really, really needed? Is it critical for that launch? Uh, and it really, really works. Okay, that begs the question, what's a good example of what you had to de-scope? You know, I think with Product Tours, a really good example would be reporting. And so, you know, we, I remember, I don't know if you remember, Brian, we had this big scoping debate on whether we should launch with some reporting functionality, which basically means goals. And uh, the conclusion we came to was no. And the kind of the, the, the line of thinking there was, you know, should we focus on reporting in favor of some of the core building or workflow features that would enable you to build the type of tool that you wanted to build. And in our head, it was more important to focus on helping customers build the tool that they wanted to build, because if they couldn't build the tool they wanted, then reporting has no place. They yeah. don't care about reporting on something they can't build, right? So that really helped us. Uh, and I would say that was a good example of a scoping. Yeah, so board. we could, because the scoping was, we know we need it, but we don't need it for launch. And we can mm -hmm. have minimal reporting for launch, and we've committed to building it after. And that was unexpected. I think you and I lied, oh, we have to have it in for sure. It was actually like go-to-market pushing back, and like we had this really healthy scoping debate. It was like, Matt, I did not expect to come out with that result. But it was a great example of where we had a trade-off. Here's what we can do with this time. What's more valuable to impact the launch? Mm -hmm. And reporting dropped out. So hard dates make... Difficult decisions easier to make. 
Exactly. Okay. The other thing is this doesn't have to translate into a stressful experience for the team. I mean, it can do. It often does. But I think one of the things I'm proud of is that uh, we've matured to the point where we can build ambitious product, deliver it pretty damn fast to a high bar of quality, but and do this without people actually having to pull their hair out or work crazy hours. I remember checking in with Kuba the EM. Hey, it seems like this is saying, checking with you. Like, I think product tours was probably where we, we really healthy equilibrium. Once teams under understand and everyone's bought into, hey, we just got to make smart trade-offs here. You can have a pretty intense but incredibly motivating experience that, that is not a crazy, hectic one. So mm. on that point, I, th- I thought for me, that was particularly gratifying to feel like we've reached that point. Yeah. Something you get better at over time, I'm sure, as well. And seeing the, the trade-off and knowing that you can launch a product in a sustainable way. So there it is, your window into how we create and launch product in Intercom. And if you're interested in working with product teams like this, We're hiring in our Dublin, London and SF offices. So get your applications in on intercom.com forward slash careers. Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom. Inside Intercom.